Don't call it a comeback. I'll have hair for years. Wake up in the morning feeling like P. Diddy. Hey, what up, girl? Grab my glasses. I'm out the door. I'm going to hit this city. Let's Before go. I leave, brush my teeth with a bottle of Jack. Because when I leave for the night, I ain't coming back. I'm talking. Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios. After the play was over, unsportsmanlike conduct. This is the Press Box. Offense number 17. Unsportsmanlike contact. Defense number 57. With Graney and Bischoff. Personal foul. Offense number 73. Personal foul. Offense number 76. On ESPN Las Vegas. All penalties offset. Fourth down. Uh, not knowing what the hell they were doing there. Kind of like this show in most days. It's ESPN 1100, 100.9 FM. Ed, Tyler, and Jared. Let's start off the week with some VGK. The first bite. Why are the Coyotes and Golden Knights dirty? Okay, there's a lot of ways we can go with that one. Yeah, uh, I, I'm a little creeped I out just, when I wrote it. Yeah, well, I... uh. Well, when you lose seven four and it's five nothing, uh, you either uh, kind of stand up and start hitting some people, or you probably get killed again. So it appeared Tyler the Coyotes. I was there yesterday, uh, and it actually, ironically, started with the Golden Knights with Reeves. But um, Tockett, after their blowout uh, loss on Friday, was talking about someone needs to hit someone, and they got embarrassed. So I don't know about you, I I wasn't that surprised that things got was were testy all day yesterday, especially from the Coyotes, who, like I said, just got drilled on Friday night. Is that any more proof that just hitting people doesn't actually lead to you winning games? Yeah. Well, like it, like the head coach of a team that got beat 7 to 4 says they need to hit someone. The game ends up being like one of the dirtiest games the Golden Knights have had all season and Arizona still loses the they game. They still lose. Like which tells you a lot more about Arizona. Right. Like the idea that oh, we just got to the the answer to we gave up 7 goals is we've got to hit somebody. No, it's not. The answer to giving up seven goals is to, A, not have a goaltender that's horrible, and B, don't give up so many damn good chances like the Golden Knights had in Friday night's game against Arizona. But, again, we had two, I mean, two pretty dirty hits, two probably suspension-worthy hits in that game. Ryan Reeves had his on Jordan Gross, where he gets his shoulder right into Gross's head. Um, That, to me, like... do you think that's suspension worthy? Well, I think they have to look at it. It's interesting. Um, you're going to be surprised. I don't know, and I'm not saying it wasn't dirty, but listening afterwards, I could see them coming back and saying that the puck had just been away and and it was not late. Again, I, they're going to look at it, obviously. We'll know pretty fast here. Usually that thing's decided by the morning, and we usually get an email saying this person's been suspended. But I'm not going to be shocked if nothing happens. I, I, they looked at it. They looked at it right after it happened. And a lot of times that doesn't mean anything because the player safety people can slow it down. And, you know, they have their time. And unlike referees, they got to get things going during a game. Um, so I'm not suggesting it wasn't dirty. But I'm not going to – I was listening to Pete DeBoer after last night. And I won't be surprised if they also go with it wasn't late. The puck had just been released. He, he, he knew he was going to get hit. A lot of that might explain away what was probably in the end a dirty hit. So if you're telling me he's going to get three games like Stevenson, I guess I won't be surprised. But if you're telling me nothing happens, I'm not going to be surprised at that either. If they don't suspend him, the NHL screwed up. Because 
Ryan Reeves did exactly what the NHL was trying to get rid of, and that is hitting a guy in the head and that being the main point of contact. Almost any time a guy gets suspended for an illegal check to the head, one of the key points is, was the head the main point of contact? And Ryan Reeves' shoulder into Jordan Gross's head was the main point of contact on that hit. And the the, the only thing that's saving Ryan Reeves is that the guy played the puck a second before he got there, or less than a second right, before right. he got that's there. That's going to maybe. But even still, maybe. Ryan Reeves didn't make an attempt to play the puck. Like, if you watch it, Ryan Reeves actually takes his stick off the ice when he realizes he's not going to get there in time to make a play on the puck and goes straight into the hit and hits him straight in the head. Like, that is an illegal hit to the head. And the other thing working against Ryan Reeves, he got suspended for a hit in Game 7 against the Vancouver Canucks during the playoffs. We are less than 50 games removed from the last time Ryan Reeves got suspended for an illegal hit. So he is a repeat offender, and it's not like, oh, it happened four years ago. It happened last year. It happened less than 50 total games ago. So if they do not suspend Ryan Reeves, I think the NHL has messed up big time here because he hit him in the head. That's an illegal hit to the head, and it's a guy who has done it before and done it very recently. That is is almost exactly what the NHL looks for in terms of, hey, are we suspending this guy or not? Oh, I mean, I agree with all that. I'm just trying to look at if they come back with – nothing what their excuse or reason would be and it's gonna have to be and this might be completely bs is that the puck was the puck had just been released i'm trying to figure out what would they explain it as why you know they don't do anything to him i think they should i just don't know if they will um i think i agree with you i think it was definitively the main point of contact was the head and in that instance uh he should be suspended um, I'm trying, and I was there. I watched the slow motion four or five times. Um, even if it's the shoulder, and I, I, I thought it was more shoulder than kind of elbow. First, people are saying the elbow. I'm like, no, nah, it's not the elbow. It was more the shoulder. It still went high to his head, head area. Now, it was not funny, but it was interesting that later in the game, they say Gross is out for a lower body injury. If you look at the hit, their right knees also collide. So I guess that's what they meant, although we were in the press box kind of like, saying, you know, do the Coyotes know where the head is on the body? Because all of a sudden, a lower body injury, we kind of laughed at that, saying, what are you talking about? But when you rewatch it, they do collide with knees as well. So that had to be what they were talking about. I just thought it was somewhat laughable that it wasn't like an upper body injury, given where the con- a lot of the contact was that you saw. Okay, so what about the Jordan Gross one? So, or not Jordan Gross. What about the no. Connor Garland one on Mark Stone in the last 15 seconds of the game where he upends Mark Stone with yeah. a low hit? I I mean, I thought it I thought it was a bad hit. Uh borderline dirty. I don't think he gets disciplined. I I don't I don't think he gets disciplined. I'm not saying he shouldn't again. Both of these if they come out with suspensions, I won't blink and say, "Okay, I get that. That's fine and that's probably what should happen." Um about 14 seconds left, you know, the, the puck's been cleared. You know it's probably over. You know what's happened the entire game. Uh, you know, the, the non-boarding call against Pacioretty. Pacioretty then, you know, destroys, um, I forget who it was in the in the corner. Um, was it Demir? No, it was uh, Chikrin before, you know, he actually, you know, takes out Chikrin before Marshall gets to pass Nosek for the goal. So all of these, uh, you know, were just paybacks one way or the other. But, yeah, that was a bad hit on Stone with 14 seconds left as well. I think the Connor Garland one was worse on Mark Stone, given the situation where there's 14 seconds left in the game. The puck was gone much sooner than in the Reeves one, and he intentionally goes low into Mark Stone's knee. Now, 
The difference in terms of suspension is the NHL makes it a priority to suspend guys who hit other people in the face. Uh, It's not as much of a priority to, uh, at least we haven't seen as much of a priority when you go low on a guy, even though it's probably just as dangerous to do something like that to Mark Sean. So I thought that hit was worse. I think there's a less chance Connor Garland gets suspended today, though, than Ryan Reeves because he didn't hit him in the head. And that's the priority. And I should have looked this up. I don't know if Connor Garland's been suspended before. Like, that is one of the big things about the NHL when they do suspend a guy is, oh, he's done this before. Reeves has. Reeves has been suspended before. I don't know if Connor Garland has. So I don't know, you know, that has an impact when they do decide to suspend or how long they suspend for. But I thought both were dirty. And I think, like, you can go the course of a season – and we'll see hits like that eight or nine times in a, in a Golden Knight season. And we had two last night in the game. So I was, I don't know, to me, I was i was surprised how dirty it got. Because you mentioned the Pacioretty missed boarding call. Uh, Tomas Nosek at one point thought he got elbowed in the face as well. Like, there were a lot of plays in that game. And, mm-hmm. and the game the game ends and neither team leaves the ice. Because the Coyotes yeah. are still yelling at Max Pacioretty. Telling, right. I don't know what the hell they were yelling at him, but they were still yelling at him. Like, very rarely do you see a team lose and just hang around on the ice to yell at the other team. Like that was that was as dirty of a regular season game the Golden Knights have probably ever played. Yeah, it's ironic. I don't kind of well, not I mean most of them we can say this for because it's really kind of Colasar and reason. You kind of think maybe get into something, but certainly not Pacioretty. Um, but again, he was involved in a few hits. One he took and one he laid um, on on Demir's against the boards, which you know led to the led to the uh, the goal. Um, so maybe there was some of that. I don't know what Pat Shreddy might have said after the stone hit. One thing I'll go back to you're right on is that that's, you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a professional athlete. Maybe they can take more than the average person. But that one on stone, boy, that could really blow a knee out or really cause some damage to a knee. Um, or as he's flipping, his hand comes down. He can really rich, rich up his hand, uh, whether sprain or break an, uh, a wrist. I mean, that was a dangerous hit. Um, that, like, I think I agree with you that they. I'll be honest. I don't even know if they'll look at that unless the Knights. I, I, I his protocol. Maybe the Knights. You know, in, in the in the NFL, you can send plays in and you can say, "Look at this. Um, we think something happened here that wasn't called." Um, I assume, can the Knights also do that? Can they send in clips and say, look at this? Or does the player safety do that on their own? I don't know that. But if I'm the Knights, I'm throwing that in a clip just for them to look at. Yeah, I am too. Oh, absolutely. I, you're sending whatever you can send to whoever yeah. you need to send it to. Because it's, I mean, listen, that's a dirty hit. That That is a horrible play by Connor Garland to upend Mark Stone like that. And like you mentioned, you know, you could blow out a knee or land on your hand awkwardly. If Mark Stone doesn't catch him, catch himself, he's going face first into the ice. Like right, if, right. if for whatever reason he can't get his hands down to catch himself, you're going face first into the ice on that. So both of those, to me, extremely dirty. Both are suspension worthy, but I I bet Ryan Reeves is more suspension worthy just because it's a hit to the head, and that's yeah, normally yeah, what the NHL the likes to punish. Yeah. Um, yeah. One other thing on that game. The Golden Knights started that game with a full lineup. They actually played the last two games with a full lineup. It's uh, not exactly great that that is news at this point in the season, that the Golden Knights were actually able to play with a full lineup. But Keegan Colasar and Ryan Reeves both left that game with injuries. They play again tonight against the Kings. Uh, Given the severity of those injuries, I guess we got to be ready for the Golden Knights to play again without a full lineup, right? Uh, Yeah, I would assume... Glass, who's been healthy scratch for three straight, might be on the ice tonight. We won't know. Um, 
you can't go to morning skates in, in LA. Um, that's one of the things that you can cover the game at night, but you can't go to morning skates. So I don't know what we'll get out what we'll get out of the morning skates in terms of lines, but I assume Cody Glass is at least one option um, this morning. Uh, I believe uh, I'm pretty sure on this they put uh, Patrick Brown on uh, long term IR. Now that's mostly, and we're going to talk about this later. Mostly, I think, to clear some space here and, and maybe allow them to do something today. But, yeah, if those two can't go, you know, here we go again, and they could be short uh, the second on a back-to-back when they go up to L.A. tonight. It's amazing how often this happens. And, and maybe Colasar and Reeves are both fine and they play tonight, but it's amazing that we're sitting here talking about, well, they finally are healthy, two guys get hurt, and they might have to yeah. play again without a full line. It's, it's incredible that this keeps happening to this team where they have to start. A lot of teams will finish games. A lot of teams will finish games without a full lineup because guys get hurt. Both teams last night finished without a full complement of skaters. It's amazing how often the Golden Knights start games without a full complement of skaters because of where they are with the salary cap. So, I don't know. We'll see how healthy those two are. And the other point on that, did you catch Pete DeBoer last night slipping up and saying Colasar had a hip problem? Yes. Yeah. Oh, he messed up. on the Zoom. He yeah, messed he up. He gave a, yeah, he gave he a he gave a specific body part. Gave us the hip on Colasar. You know he's he's getting in trouble for that, right? George he, McPhee's bringing him in, saying, "What are you uh, doing?" Well, uh, okay, so let's guess that Reeves will not be suspended today, but Pete De, Pete DeBoer will be by his bosses. <laughs> so he will not be coaching in LA tonight because God forbid you ever mention any part of the body that might be injured from a certain player. <laughs> Wasn't it? When Pete DeBoer first got the job, like within those first couple of days, didn't he give an injury update oh. on somebody having a broken hand uh, or finger? Yep. I was standing there in Ottawa uh, where he we, – we, we flew to Canada where he took over for Gallant. It was his very first press conference. Uh, I remember this – I remember this clearly outside their, lo- outside their uh, locker room in Ottawa. And I don't remember the player – but we're all standing. There's a huge scrum. And he mentioned specifically, someone said, is he available tonight? And he mentioned specifically the injury. And if you saw every media's face in that scrum, <laughs> like, what, like play that back. Did he really say that? Play that back. Everyone like starts playing their thing back. And it never happened again. Because uh, there's no question uh, GM, GM, and uh, McCrimmon uh, passed out wherever they were hearing this and had a little talk with Pete uh, probably two minutes after that press conference. So um, I'll always remember that. And when he was walking past me for the first time, I th- I said, do you miss Shang Peng? And uh, he kind of he smiled. He goes, ah, Shang's a good guy. So those are the two things I'll always take from that press conference. Shang Peng and the fact he actually said what the injury was. All right. Coming up next, uh, UNLV basketball. A couple of their transfers are going to Power 5 schools. We're back to the Press Box Morning Show with Ed Graney and Tyler Bischoff. Be part of the conversation on the Finley Kia text line at 69187. Finley Kia, come see a Kia on West Sahara. Transfer season in college basketball. Isn't it great? So UNLV has lost uh, half its roster to the transfer portal. And two players have a new home. David Jenkins is transferring to Utah, and Caleb Grill is following TJ Otzelberger and going back to Iowa State. So four players that have left UNLV have a new school. Isaac Lindsay's walking on at Wisconsin. Devin Tillis is going to UC Irvine. David Jenkins to Utah, and Caleb Grill to Iowa State. So 
We'll start with David Jenkins. Uh, what do you make of him going to Utah, going to play for Craig Smith, uh, and he's going back with DeMarlo Slocum, who left Utah to come to UNLV and is now yeah. back at Utah? Uh, that DeMarlo Slocum had a better relationship than T.J. Oscar? <laughs> David Jenkins? Uh, no, I mean, you know, so you have an assistant who knows the kid very, very well. You have a head coach who scouted and coached against him, so I would assume Craig Smith likes something he's on Dave Jenkins. No matter what DeMarlo Slocum says, Craig Smith is the one building the team. He has to have final say. So you obviously have two coaches who like the kid and think he could be good, and you know, you've said as much as anyone. Look, he can make shots. I mean, I don't defensively, I'd assume Craig Smith thinks he needs to work with them a lot. Um, I'm trying to figure, you'll remember this, how Craig Smith's guards defended. So I'm trying to, I, Cade was such an imposing presence. I never kind of watched how, you know, Brock Miller or others defended, how good they were. You can fill this in on that. But again, you have an, when, when assistants have a relationship with kids and he can convince the head coach, maybe he didn't even convince him. Like I said, Craig Smith scouted him and coached against him. Maybe he really thought he not only was good, but he could get a lot more out of him. Defensively, I, I think the key is going to be to hide him. The key is going to be, hey, you've got three or four other good defensive players on the floor, and it doesn't matter as much what David Jenkins does. Nemesh Kata is a player that does that. Uh, he hides a lot of your flaws on the perimeter. Like if, if Nemesh Kata, if you know he had Nemesh Kata, David Jenkins' defense wouldn't have been a big an issue the last couple of years. But he's certainly not very good on that in the floor. And then offensively, like what I'm curious to see is what's his role going to be? Because right, if right. you if you bring David Jenkins in. And David Jenkins' role is to shoot. And you're not asking him really to do anything else. You're not asking him to create offense. You're not even really asking him to dribble. Like, if your goal is just, hey, David Jenkins, shoot threes for us, David Jenkins is going to be phenomenal in that role because he's a great shooter. He he shot over 40%. He's going to be be phenomenal in that role. The problem he had at UNLV was that – he was needed to be the second offensive playmaker. They needed him to be the second offensive guy to create shots for other people, and he can't do it. He, that's not what he does. Even last year, he creating his own shot, like he couldn't really create a good his own shot. Uh, he can't do that. And so, if Utah, if Craig Smith asks him, "Hey, you're just going to stand there and shoot," David Jenkins is going to be unbelievable at that. If the role is for David Jenkins to create, it's going to be just like we saw here at UNLV. And he's, it might be, be even worse because he's playing at a higher level in the Pac-12. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. We Look, I'm not going to pretend I watch much Utah basketball at all. I don't know who's transferred out of there. Um, who knows who he's bringing back? I think in the Pac-12, you're exactly right. You're going to need a couple more options offensively before you get to David Jenkins. So maybe that's the only reason, they're, you know, one the main reason they're taking him is he can shoot it. And they need someone like that. It's college basketball in 2021. You need guys who can hit threes. And if that's the case, good for David Jenkins. He's going up and he's going up a level. Obviously, this will be the highest level he'll play at because uh, it's now South Dakota State and it's not UNLV. It's the Pac-12. So uh, hopefully he translates. It, it, it seems like a nice fit for the guy. You know, when you're going in and you know the top assistant or one of the assistants and he knows you really well, that probably had a lot to do with this, I would assume. And uh, you know, I mean, good for him. He gets to go play in the Pac-12. The funny one is Caleb Grill going to Iowa State, back to Iowa State, following T.J. Otzelberger again, because the timeline on Caleb Grill is that he committed to T.J. Otzelberger in South Dakota State, but then when Otzelberger took the UNLV job, Caleb Grill decided to go to Iowa State. 
played his right. freshman year there, then transferred to UNLV for this past season following TJ Otzelberger. But then once Otzelberger took the job at Iowa State, Caleb Grill was back going to Iowa State. It'll be the second time he's gone back to Iowa State. He's He's got to love Otzelberger a lot, and Otzelberger's got to love him just as much back. Well, I got a text from uh, a buddy who covers the league the other day when he found this out, and it was kind of funny because I think people forget what had happened with Caleb Grill. He's like, oh, I don't know, he seems like a nice kid. I don't think he's really a Big 12 player. And I said, well, he was before. Uh, he didn't, I mean, he didn't do much, obviously, at that level because he transferred right out. So he's going back there. Um, he must, oh, look, he obviously likes TJ. Uh, again, it's like Jenkins. You want him to succeed, that's fine. He wasn't going to have a place with Kruger, or at least he didn't think he'd have the same place or a better place. So he's familiar with TJ. And, you know, there's another kid, you know, what will his role be? Now, he certainly can't be a leading player in, in, in the Big 12, but can they find him a role to be a shooter? You know, I, maybe they can, um, and there's familiarity there. So you've got two kids now uh, going up in class uh, from, the, from UNLV. I think we'll have a third in Bryce Hamilton here soon with uh, him going into the Pac-12 or Power 5 conference, and hope they all succeed. I, I will say after Jenkins did leave, um, and I think Bryce Hamilton's leaving, uh, we've said this last week. Did you ever get to the point where you think, okay, UNLV next year will win games 48-46? Uh, yes, that's that's what it's looking like. Yes. Um, I don't know who's scoring for this team. I don't know who's scoring 48. Well, I don't know who's uh, giving up 46. I don't know who's scoring for UNLV. Uh, defensively, they've got a lot of guys that are that – are, that, well – Okay, again, I'll say this. I don't know how much we should expect bench players in the Big 12 to be great defensive players coming to UNLV, but it appears as though they've gotten better on that end of the floor. I hope they've gotten better on that end of the floor because they've gotten much worse on the offensive end. It appears as though if they if they lined up right now with the roster they had, their only path to victory would be 48-44, to 44, and that's just the way it's going to be. Nobody's going to do anything special. The streak might end with the current roster. The well, way they're constructed, the streak might end. Yeah. Someone said that at the hockey game. That's the first thing they said when I said, oh, Jenkins is gone. They're like, oh, streak's in jeopardy. Streak's in jeopardy. Might happen. I said, yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. It's the first person someone said last night at the hockey game. I like, oh, what about the streak now? Who's hitting a three? I said, I don't know. Uh, Moses Wood? Is, is, is the entire streak on the shoulders of Moses Wood at this point? It is. Moses Wood's the only one that can do it. All right. On-air planning. Do we call Sam Gordon or do we do more Golden Knights at 730? I think we call Sam Gordon. He got up for us. He got up. He for got us. A, okay. All right. He got up for us. We we'll, we will we will honor that. Let's call Sam Gordon next. I should have known. She didn't like me. I don't think anybody likes you. Jared, if you put your hands up like that again, we're getting a new producer. I like me. It's the press box with Grainy and Bischoff. Joining us now from the Review Journal is Sam Gordon. Sam, thank you for getting up early this morning. Thank for you, us. Sam. And Nate. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate you guys having me. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. So we've had uh, a lot of outgoing transfers for UNLV. We're starting to get some more uh, information on where they will be heading. I do want to start actually with this one though. Bryce Hamilton. He went. He put his name or declared for the NBA draft, but now he's also in the portal. We've seen a lot of schools, USC, Kansas, Oregon, some big names that have uh, reportedly reached out to him. Where do you think Bryce Hamilton actually ends up next year playing basketball? Yeah, good question. I mean, the the, the school that I always heard, and this you know this dates back um, 
several weeks, even back into the, into the season, that was USC. Uh, and that, I, that that doesn't mean I'm not you know that's, I'm not trying to guarantee that he ends up there. But I, I you know he's from Pasadena, uh, that that area, and um, you know Southern California, and and it makes a lot of sense. USC's taken transfers historically, done well with transfers. They're they're obviously losing a lot of production with Evan Mobley, who's going to be going to the NBA draft. I don't know if he's officially declared, but that's a foregone conclusion that he's going to go play in the NBA right away and he was a you know 17 points per game guy for them so um that that to me would make a lot of sense in terms of location and in terms of fit for him on the team where where he would be able to go um have the ball a little bit still have a pretty big role and not not really uh give up too much of what he did uh at unlv they still have the chance to develop and have the ball in his hands and showcase what he could do against pac-12 competition now it's not a surprise to me at all that some of these more marquee programs uh, have reached out right i mean bryce hamilton over the course of the last two years has proven that he is a, a big-time player, a big-time scorer, certainly at the Mountain West level, and somebody that I think could, could translate to Power 5 conferences and be an effective player, although, again, not necessarily in the same role. But um, the, the the school, I've again, I've most consistently heard associated with Bryce Hamilton is USC. That's my, that's my guess right now. It's not a guarantee, and we'll see what happens over the course of the next few days. Yeah, so in listening to what you say, Sam, you think he'd be fine in the Pac-12? I think he can play at the Pac-12 for sure. Um, I, now, again, he's not going to – I don't think – whatever team he goes to, I don't think it's going to be the same role where, you know, this, especially this past season, he was very ball-dominant, um, especially as a scorer and asked to play make a little bit more. Uh, I think it bodes well for his development that he was put in a challenging situation where defenses were focused on him every night and, and he was forced to kind of adjust and figure that out. And sometimes it went well for him. You know, he had certainly had big games, and other times he didn't. Uh, but, but with three years of experience under his belt and, you know, 6'4", 6'5", uh, can get to the basket. We know he can he can score in the mid range area, and you know has an array of floaters and kind of herky jerk movements that 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 create space for him. Um, I, I think he he can definitely play in, in the Pac twelve or any Power Five conference and be a productive player. It's just going to be in a slightly different role. Uh, what do you make of David Jenkins going to Utah? How good do you think he'll be there? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a good fit for him. Uh, I, I think it's it's a pretty good situation, right now. David Jenkins is going to be twenty three. By, by the next college basketball season. Um, he's had a lot of experience now. He's been through a lot of ups and downs, and I think uh, he's going to go into a situation uh, where he's going to be utilized in the best way possible, right, as, as more of a specialist. I think he was a little bit um, in over his head. Not that he wasn't productive at UNLV. He was, right? He was a productive player, but um, he was really, really, really a big focal point of what they wanted to do, and I think he's at his best where – you know, he's facing the floor, uh, coming off screens, doing things like that instead of handling the ball a little bit more like he did this past year. I understand some of that was out of necessity, uh, but, but he is a, he's a catch-and-shoot guy at, at his core. And, and I think it, at Utah, um, with Craig Smith, you know, coach who's familiar with him, being that he's a Mountain West coach uh, coming over to the Pac-12, uh, is going gonna, is gonna to put him in situations to maximize his efficiency and, and to, to be more successful. And, and I don't think he's going to have the same kind of statistical production. This is another step up of competition. Uh, we saw how good the Pac-12 was this past year. I expect it to be even better uh, next year. Now that it's kind of back on the map, and then you have quality coaches in that league with Craig Smith being one of them. Uh, but, but I think he's going to put David Jenkins Jr. in a position to be successful in a position to help that team out. And, and uh, from, from UNLV's perspective, you know, you are losing a productive player, but this was somebody that I think had to shoot the ball a lot on a team that was 12 and 15. Like this team wasn't very good. And, uh, and, and he was part of it. He was part of that and part of the struggles at times. So, uh, it, it makes sense for, I think for both sides to, to move on, especially Jenkins Jr. And, and he, I think he's going to be in a position where he can, he can have some success at a high level. 
It appears Caleb Grill will go wherever TJ Osliver wants <laughs> to go. So we don't know where the next stop is for TJ, but Caleb will be with him. Transferring back to Iowa State. I was telling Tyler it was pretty funny. Um, another reporter in the league texted me and said, I don't think he's a Big 12 player. And I said, well, he always he already was. He went to Iowa State, didn't do anything. So now he transferred to UNLV. Now he goes back. He has to be a specialist, obviously, in the Big 12. I guess you're not surprised he followed TJ back. Obviously, they have a really good relationship, but – was that a smart move for this kid? Or maybe should have he looked at, I don't know, I don't want to say a Big West or a WAC, kind of like uh, where Tillis went and, and, and get into a league like that? Or do you think he's fine going to Iowa State if they just kind of use him how they how they need to? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on what kind of role he wants, right? Like if he wants the ball and the, to play 35 minutes a game, like like you said, the uh, uh, the Big West or you know a league like that or even the summer league where he was originally committed, I think is a better fit for him. Um, it's all about kind of rolling situation. I think in the, in the Big Twelve, uh, you know, seventh, eighth man, and, and maybe you proved me wrong, and may, maybe you know we're all wrong on this. But I, I didn't see anything this past year. I thought he was a solid glue guy for UNLV. You know, he knows where to be on defense. He, you know, he can space the floor a little bit, but he's not an elite shooter. He's not a forty percent guy. He shot around thirty four, thirty five percent this past season. He had games where you know he was he was streaky. Um, he could certainly get hot and make make shots, but he's not this guy that I, I think Big Twelve defenses are going to be you know, fearful of running them off the line. And um, in, in terms of athleticism in that league, I mean, he's certainly not a high-end athlete in the Big 12. Big 12 is one, arguably the best league in the country. So I think there's a role for him. I think, you know, seventh, eighth man, I think he can get his, you know, 18, 20 minutes a game and be an effective player in certain situations. But if he was looking for a bigger role and the kind of playing time uh, and the kind of having the kind of impact that he had at UNLV, uh, I think he would, be, would have been better suited at, yeah, at one of those, at one of those mid-major stops. Big 12 basketball is no joke. I mean that's that's big. I mean the he's gonna be playing against Baylor. He's gonna be playing against Kansas. He and I know, I know he was in the league before, but he was a twelve minutes a game guy and he really really struggled, right? And he's you know a couple years older, a couple years better, uh, but but I don't think he's a, a big time impact player uh, in the Big Twelve. To your point, uh, who is scoring points for UNLV next season? Uh, great question. Um, I think Nick Blake is 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 going to be a, a step up into a big role and. and Going to be one of the focal points of the offense. Uh, he was a you know top hundred kid in high school who had power five offers, and I think you saw flashes of that scoring potential this past season, right? I mean, he can he's six 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 seven. He's long. He can shoot it a little bit. His um, upper needs work. Don't get me wrong, but he can make them. You know, when he's wide open, uh, he can get to the basket. He's got some. He's got some bounce. He's explosive, uh, and he. I really think he got his. You know, his his first year for him was about getting his sea legs under him and adjusting to the college game. And, being that he's a returning player who who has all the physical traits, who has really kind of an NBA, you know, NBA tools, right? Not necessarily an NBA game yet, but NBA tools. Uh, I think the Rebels are going to be counting on him to, to step up and score. And then, you know, some of these transfers too, right? These guys weren't necessarily productive uh, at their previous Big 12 schools, but it might have just been a situation thing. And if, if Kevin Kruger can play the style of play that he says he wants, and I, I know every coach wants to play fast and get up and down and defend at a high level, but, but he brought in some athletes. Uh, some athletic, some more athletic players. I think it's going to be certainly a, a, a more a faster group, a group capable of playing faster this next year. I think they're going to be able to get some more easy ones in transition and not have to be in the half court as much. And if they are, uh, I think Blake's the focal point, and, and other guys are going to have to kind of get their points where they fit in. And, and you know, I don't, they're not done uh, building this roster, right? They're still going to go out there and take a couple other transfers. Maybe maybe somebody else comes in with kind of a scoring pedigree. Uh, but it's a fair question. There's not a lot of there's certainly not a lot of proven offense on this roster, and it's going to be new roles. Uh, for for anybody really uh, coming in, for any any of these Big Twelve guys, there's gonna be an expectation there that they produce. They haven't necessarily been counted on to produce in the past, and 
uh, we'll, we'll see how that shakes out. But but I, I imagine Nick Blake is going to have a, a bigger role and be one of the focal points for UNLV. Yeah, um, take us through, uh, you know, uh, how he's doing this. He's obviously going to Power Fives and hoping kids can come down to different levels uh, or a different level and produce. Are you are you good with that kind of philosophy, or would you rather have maybe we saw what Jenkins did and others who come up and, and were really good at the other level, or does it matter to you? Oof, good question. Um, I like the approach. Now, that doesn't mean I don't think they could certainly use a guy maybe from a, from a lower-level league that was really productive and is used to having the ball in their hands and, and capable of making plays. But but clearly, um, the incentive for these big 12 players that have come over is, is more playing time and a bigger role and a better opportunity. And they were all, uh, if I'm not mistaken, all, everybody who's come over so far was a you know former four-star recruit, you know, three, top 150 kind of player that was just in a situation that didn't, didn't necessarily work out. Right. And, uh, and, and you, recruiting rankings are, I mean, it's a hit and miss. I think a lot of that is, is more for kind of entertainment than, than really legitimately ranking players because there's so many guys. How can you get around to see anybody and compile a thorough evaluation? That's no knock to the ranking services. It's a, it's a lot of work. It's, it's really difficult. Uh, but I think you're in a situation here where, yeah, maybe some of these guys were a little overrated, but they had clearly had tools and measurables that, that jumped out. And, and, and popped, and it was just about fit and opportunity. And coming, you know, coming from the Big 12 to Mountain West, Mountain West is a very good mid-major league, but it's not the Big 12. And putting, put, have, putting these guys in, in different situations with a different coach and a different style of play, and, and, and you know, in, in, in the case with, with having Carlin Hartman and, and, and Kevin Kruger on the staff um, as the head coach, you know, these guys are familiar with who, what these guys did in the Big 12, right? They, they're, they're aware of these players. They have some kind of understanding of what their strengths and weaknesses are from having scouted them, having prepared to play against them, even though they weren't playing that much. So I, I don't have a problem with the approach. Now, at the end of the day, I think getting this program turned around is, all, is going to be all about you know, recruiting at the high school level, bringing in guys that are going to be here for three or four years that they can really bring in and develop kind of their own way as opposed to having guys for just a year or two like you're, like you're going to have with these big 12 guys. But um, I understand the approach. I mean, these are talented players that, that just need an opportunity and, and need more of an opportunity than they had in their previous stops. And, and they won't be coming here unless Kevin Kruger and company were going to give it to them. So uh, it's going to be more athletic team, I think, a, a little bit more of an up-tempo team. I'm not sure it's going to be a better team, at least in year one. But but it's clear that, that Kevin Kruger and his staff have a plan, and, and they're going to go with it at least early on until they can really really cultivate some of those relationships with, with high school players and, and develop talent that way. All right. How was working out with Jonathan Abram and his trainer in jeans? <laughs> oh, man. it was. I wish I would have had workout gear. I wish I would have had workout gear. I had no idea I was going to – you know, I thought I was just coming to hang out, you know, kind of observe, see what they were, those guys were up to for for a story. And you know, Jonathan Abram and Keyshawn Nixon, like, come on over here, you need to do what we're doing. And I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I can't back down from that. Uh, but but I, I certainly wasn't expecting it, wasn't prepared for it. But it was, um, you know, cool experience for sure. Um, you know, seeing what those guys go through and and kind of the the routines that they do. I, you know, I like to exercise, you know, lift weights and stuff. But it's a lot different when you're an NFL player, right? You're doing functional strength movements and engaging muscles that. And, and doing things that I don't regularly do. So that was challenging, but it was a ton of fun. Uh, those guys have a good time, and their trainer, Deion Hodges, does an excellent job at getting guys ready. He trains a lot of the Raiders and, and players all around the NFL. So uh, it was a fun time, but, but it was a re- reaffirmed what I, what I should have already known, and that's never wear jeans to a workout. Whether I'm working out myself, whether I'm covering a workout, uh, covering a workout, I know what to do from now on, and, and that's not wear jeans. Well, I'm glad that even in jeans, you decided. Well, I can't back down from this. I've got to. I got to do it if they ask me. <laughs> no, I, I had to. I had to. I appreciate it. I appreciate the. Uh, I appreciate you bringing that up. It, it was a fun time, and I, I did the best I can. And I'll, I, I, 
I, I told all those guys I'll be locked and loaded next time in my, in my workout <laughs> and ready to go, ready to complete the full workout. <laughs> well, he is Sam Gordon from the Review Journal. Sam, thanks for getting up early with us. Thanks, Sam. We no appreciate problem. it. No problem, fellas. Take it easy. Take care. Right. Uh, yeah, you know, they asked me to work out. I'm definitely saying no. No doubt about it. I'm so- saying, you see what I'm wearing? Absolutely not. <laughs> I would have worn two you, pairs of jeans you, just to wait, make sure. You haven't worn jeans in the five, like in the three years I've known you. Yeah, I haven't worn jeans in a long time either. Why would you wear jeans? You don't have to go anywhere now. You didn't wear them before. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Jeans are overrated. Wear nice. Wear, wear comfortable pants. Way better. All right, coming up next. Are you ready for Alex Rodriguez to move the Timberwolves to Las Vegas? Look out, folks. This is not a good idea. This is not a good idea. We're back to the Press Box Morning Show with Ed Greeny and Tyler Bischoff. The Minnesota Timberwolves were finally sold, almost, kind of, eventually. So Glenn Taylor's the owner. He is going to sell the team to Alex Rodriguez and Mark Lohr. Mark Lohr is a billionaire, so he's probably selling it to Mark Lohr and Alex Rodriguez's name is just attached to this. But... The strange detail is that Glenn Taylor's going to stay in control for a couple of years before actually turning the Timberwolves over to Mark Lore and A-Rod. Have you, can, can you figure out a good reason for that? Like why he would stay in control for two years? Not really. If someone's buying my product, uh, I would assume they... Unless it might be Mark Lore and Alex Rodriguez saying they want to learn the business better and, you know, see how things work. And, you know, him staying around could help that transition. Um, it might be their situation where they're asking that, um, you know, like I said, billionaires usually like to control everything they do. Um, that right. most of the reason they got to be billionaires. Um, so, you know, obviously Alex Rodriguez is, you know, uh, not from that world. He's from the sports world, but not from that world. Um, I think, you know, he and the whole J-Lo buying the Mets thing uh, fell through. Maybe he just wants to be a professional sports owner. I mean, obviously, it didn't work out in baseball, so he picked up the next best thing in terms of, in his mind, trying to be an owner of a professional sports team. Uh, but, no, the, the I think the interesting thing here is, you know, back in July of last year, I mean, Taylor's been trying to move this team for a while. And I thought I read this uh, as well with this deal. Tell me if you read this as well that the condition of the sale will be they stay in Minnesota. It definitely was last July when Taylor said he's put it up for sale, but that's going to be part of any deal he does. Uh, We know Silver likes stability, um, kept the Kings in Sacramento and other places. He doesn't like to move teams if he doesn't have to. So I'll be surprised if that's also not part of this deal, which, again, it's a billionaire and also Alex Rodriguez. I would think maybe down the road they might have relocation plans, but – contractually it'll be really interesting to see when this deal is done if it in fact makes them keep it there for a certain amount of time yeah the star tribune reported that glenn taylor said there's going to be some sort of agreement to keep the team in minnesota but the star tribune also in that story wrote that that's going to be a nearly unenforceable clause unless the nba enforces it like glenn taylor right right you can't you can't sell a team and then and then after you've sold them say hey you're not allowed to move the team now the NBA right. can refuse to let them move but like on Glenn Taylor's side he can't really control that so there's going to be some sort of agreement apparently but how enforceable that is down the road is another question um, but if they don't 
uh, move the Timberwolves. If the Timberwolves stay in Minnesota, then that means expansion is still sort of in the same spot it has been where the NBA seems to be considering it, but it's not really at the forefront just yet. Um, If Minnesota was moving, that's what would be fascinating because if Minnesota moved, and let's just say, for example, they went to Seattle... I I don't know if that would make expansion more or less likely at that point, because then the NBA would have a team back in Seattle. Would they want to expand two more teams, or would they just say, okay, no thanks, we've got our team in Seattle, we don't need to expand anymore? I think it's more the former where, excuse me, I I think it's more the latter where Seattle's getting the first team. Um, That's kind of been everyone's feelings all along. They will get the first team, having their team taken away, and at that point, I think it's a really slow process for the NBA to expand. I don't know if they necessarily want that, but I do know, or excuse me, I do think at least from everything I've read that the owners, if there's a choice, they will go to Seattle first. So I guess that puts Vegas second, third in line. You know, other other cities obviously want the NBA, but I think Seattle's by far the front runner. If in fact, again, if in fact, uh, you know, A-Rod in this group wants to move at some point, now, they could want to move to Vegas. You know, that's where A-Rod might want to be and his, his the other owners might want to be. But like you said, the league's gonna have, the owners are going to have final say on that. And if there's a hard, hard push that you have to go to Seattle first, maybe they stay in Minnesota. I don't know. Maybe they don't want to go to Seattle. The other part that's fascinating on this is ESPN reported that they're going to be sold for about $1.5 billion, which was mm-hmm. the asking price all along for the Timberwolves. But Adam Silver said earlier this year, that $2.5 billion as an expansion fee was low, was the word he used. And I, I, to me, I'm having a hard time understanding how the NBA could watch the Timberwolves be sold for $1.5 billion and then expect to get an expansion fee of nearly $3 billion, yeah. double what the Timberwolves just sold for. Even if you tell me, well, Seattle or Vegas or whatever city is more marketable, it's a brand new franchise, like I get all that. But there's no way that makes it double the price of the Minnesota Timberwolves. No, but if you want one bad enough, you might pay it. I guess. I and mean, that's I mean, yeah. That's if you want the end one of the bad day. enough, and they, yeah, that's it. Right. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter how much the Timberwolves sold for. It's how much people no. are willing to pay the NBA to get the franchise. And if, if Adam Silver, if they've already done some research and they already know, hey... There's an ownership group in Seattle that's willing to pay three billion. Then absolutely, yeah. you ask for three billion dollars and you you get sure. away with it. But I just I don't know if I like just looking at it. You know, at the market, it doesn't seem realistic to sell a team for one point five and then turn around and get three for a team. You know, a year or two years, whatever the timeline is later. But yeah, if somebody in Seattle is willing to pay it, if somebody in Vegas or whatever city is willing to pay it. It happens, and then the NBA gets to make their money and run away. Maybe Glenn Taylor's waiting two years because he knows he's getting that expansion fee money, and he doesn't want to give that up just yet.